Okay, let's uh, go ahead and get started. We're going to be wrapping up Proverbs chapter 11, which will be the end of this section. We've already glimpsed ahead at the transitional point at 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. (laughs) And so, a blunt statement in regard to the idea that wisdom is not natural or native to us, but is something that comes and is given to us by God. And, boy, I could use, I wish I could do that in my mind, like raise and lower the mic. That would be great for kids. Just, you know, you wouldn't even have to stress your throat. Just up goes the, up goes the microphone. <laughs> it's nice. Yeah, so this, this idea that wisdom comes, it's a, it's a gift, it comes from God. It's a gift that doesn't just come magically, but frequently comes through suffering, through affliction, through discipline. And so to be willing to accept and receive that suffering and discipline. You know, lots of people suffer. There's no guarantee that you're going to benefit from that suffering. So the call of Proverbs is a call to recognize in your suffering a discipline from the fatherly hand of the one who's loved you from all eternity and desires to spend all eternity with you, and that through this, he's going to impart knowledge. Now, that knowledge is going to affect you. That knowledge is going to affect also your neighbors. And so we're going to see those themes come out, especially in the sections we're going to look at today, including uh, chapter 12 as we begin and launch into that. But let's begin then with that introduction out of the way uh, with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so, and just a reminder, if you need a Bible, uh, we do have some tucked over there in that corner, ESV. And we're in Proverbs chapter 11. Now, we covered 24. Let's just pick up there and run through quickly. So, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. So again, this is a point that doesn't make sense to fallen human reason. Obviously, if you're distributing, then you should be growing poorer, but that's not what God here gives in his Proverbs, that hidden wisdom and that hidden provision which he gives to those who are generous. And that's important to review because, again, we're going to have this idea that the wisdom God gives to you through his discipline, through his afflicting hand, is going to be wisdom that benefits not just you, but the people around you. So at verse 25, we'll just continue merrily along since we covered this stuff last week. Whoever brings blessing will himself be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. 
And think of Jesus in the background here, quoted by Paul. It's more blessed to give than to receive. 26, the people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. So again here, you can see the idea that we're not independent, nor do we stand quorum Deo before God exclusively without also being quorum mundo, before the world, before our neighbor. And these things are intimately intertwined, even though we can make the distinction. So, again, 27 then, whoever diligently seeks good finds favor. And that is the same word back in 20, verse 20. And I bring that up because we're going to see this recur in verse 20. Those of a crooked or perverse heart are an abomination to the Lord, to Yahweh. But those of blameless ways are his delight. And again, we made the distinction here that blameless does not necessarily mean sinless. And though that's the goal, I write these things to you that you may not sin. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. To walk in blamelessness is to walk in repentance and within the boundaries of the vocations God has given you. And this is actually a delight to the Lord. So that language of delight, uh, ratzon, is the same word here in 27 for favor. Whoever diligently seeks good, so the pursuit of what is good, finds or seeks favor. I think finds is probably a little better because it shows the destination. So as you diligently seek after the good, you will find favor. And it's ambiguous. I mean, you can find delight as you pursue good. That's certainly true. But it's likewise true that as you pursue good, you delight the Lord. Allah, verse 20. So we talked, and I'll just mention it briefly here, that we're not seeking delighting the Lord in the framework of justification. It's the analogy I used with sonship. I'm delighted to have my children as my son and daughter, completely independent of anything they do. I delighted to have them before they were even born. There's no merit involved. But am I delighted if they misbehave or disobey me or fight each other? No. Am I delighted when they pursue good and do good stuff and care for each other and love each other? Yes. So there's these two ways in which I'm delighted. I'm delighted simply to have them as my children. And then I'm delighted in a secondary sense, in a secondary way, based on how they conduct themselves. And that's roughly parallel to our categories of justification and sanctification. God loves and delights in having us as his children irrespective of what we do. And even were we to be that prodigal son who takes his portion and goes out and squanders it, we see precisely our Heavenly Father's heart when the prodigal son comes to his senses, returns, and the Father embraces him without even a scolding word. That's how God delights to have us as his children. Now, did that father delight that his son departed and squandered his resources? No, of course not. Did the father delight that the son returned home? Absolutely. But that delight in him as his son existed prior to any action, before 
logically and theologically before any action of the Son. Okay, so hopefully that makes sense. So we're not getting our wires crossed here. We're not thinking we have to delight God enough to be saved. That's clearly not in view. But what is in view is this wonderful, refreshing reality that when you wake up, your Heavenly Father loves you and cares about you and, in a sense, stoops down from heaven, from on high, from these cosmic realities to see what it is that you're up to, and he takes delight when you seek and pursue the good. That imbues seeking and pursuing the good with inestimable meaning and worth. Okay, so once more then, whoever diligently seeks good finds favor, or seeks favor, or finds delight, or seeks delight. But evil comes to him who searches for it. And again, we spent just a little bit of time fleshing out that, you know, when you go out looking for evil, lo and behold, you find it. When you go out on a, especially you young people, when you go out on a Friday night and you're like, "Ah, let's just see where it takes us. Well, guess where it's going to take you? So be conscientious about the path you're walking and the goal you have in mind And if that's evil, or you're open to the idea of evil, lo and behold, you'll find yourself there. That's this proverb. There are forces at work other than mere human choice. There are all around us principalities and powers of darkness who are more than happy to smooth the way of the wicked. All right? 28, whoever trusts in his riches will fall or be cast down. Either one is, I kind of prefer fall because of the parallel, but be cast down is fine too, like in the sense of judgment. Certainly, remember the rich man whose biggest problem in life is, I got too much stuff, I got to build a bigger barn. And God says to him, you fool. So certainly the sense of cast down is fine. But if you look at the parallel line, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. It opens up the potentiality for whoever is trusting in riches will fall like a dead dry leaf. Because riches don't actually give life. Even though we kind of assume they do and kind of think they do, they in fact don't. Then the parallel is rather than trusting in riches, the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Well, what makes a person righteous? In what is his trust, if not money? Yeah? No? Are you insulted by the question? Is it, <laughs> is it too much of ball on the tee? <laughs> so... Obviously, the righteous person's trust is in the Lord's provision. That's precisely what makes him righteous in God's sight, to live by faith, to live in trust that whether I have a little right now or a lot right now, I'll have exactly what I need. The Lord will provide. In the back of my mind with a text like this or a verse like this is Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. So to pursue the reign of God. He's obviously talking there to his disciples, to 
those who have been converted, who recognize the kingdom and reign of God come in Christ as our true Messiah, as our true king. And so to pursue him and pursue his way and pursue his reign, God adds the other things that are necessary unto us. Okay, and that takes us into the new material. We didn't cover this verse before. So this idea of connecting, being connected to the tree or to the vine, obviously Jesus speaks of as well, saying that he is the vine, we are the branches here, we are the leaves. In 29, a similar idea, um, or at least a over, somewhat overlapping idea, whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind. So the same wind that would cause the dried up, shriveled up, dead leaf to fall. There's a little bit of a poetic connection. More concretely, it's precisely unwise to trouble your own household. So if you ever messed up something pretty badly, it might be the case that one of your parents said to you, well, you've made your bed, now you have to lie in it. Yeah. There's another one more crass. I'll let you kind of fill in the blank. Don't blank where you eat. (laughs) And those kinds of colloquial proverbs we have are in the same sort of nexus as this one. If you trouble your own household, you're cutting yourself off at the ankles. This is your home. These are the people who are going to care for you. If you alienate them, you're not going to have anything let alone this profound gift that God has given to you and your family. And connected here is, as one who remains in the household, one is an inheritor. One receives the inheritance. That's more than just monetary, but it connects with then the parallel line. And the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. So if you cut off your family, you cut off your inheritance, you have nothing but the wind, you're going to end up being a servant to someone who conducted themselves differently than you and had the inheritance, but also retained their household. So we can see then here how the pursuit of righteousness or the pursuit of foolishness, as it were, have consequences that are long-lasting and have consequences that in some cases are irreparable, at least this side of our Lord's return, and certainly affect others, the household here in view. Okay, we've hit a couple of new themes. Let me pause there and just see if everything's clear, if there's any questions or any commentary you'd like to add. It's always better if there's a little dialogue. Um, on that uh, verse that we just covered, is it okay or or to equate? Or, well, let me how how to phrase Within within with the inheritance, are you also talking about a blessing? In mm-hmm. other words, like a father blesses a son, or, or uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's a kind of a blessing that might go along with that uh, that you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that's valuable too. 
Yeah, it's true. I mean, without thinking about it systematically, just off the cuff, with your comments, I'm reminded of Jacob and Esau, and Jacob receiving the. Bl- I mean, there's more to it than this conversation, but Jason or Jacob receiving the blessing and. Esau receiving a lesser blessing, and indeed part of that is a, has a cursed element to it. So, yeah, there's, there is this idea of um, being part of a household has physical and monetary just uh, benefits, as well as relational, psychological benefits, as well as spiritual benefits. Being out isolated on your own, you're going to end up a servant in somebody else's household. That's what the proverb's saying here. And you know, it's like, okay, well, what hope is there if we've if we've already fallen afoul of this proverb and we've completely alienated our household and there's never going any back? Does it just suck to suck and that's the end? No, I don't think so. This is precisely the greater family that Christ invites us to. When he says, remember as he's teaching, and they say, your mother and your brothers are outside and they're looking for you. And the context is at least the brothers think he might be crazy. The Pharisees have been accusing him of having a demon. They're very worried for him, probably in a loving way, just a a theologically clueless way that he's going to end up in real trouble. And Jesus takes opportunity to say, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of my father. And so here's an invitation for those who, even if you've fallen afoul of this wisdom and you've found yourself inheriting the wind, and unfortunately I think so many people in our country are doing this to themselves, the call of the gospel is into a new and everlasting household, where there's even deeper and richer connection. And being connected into a congregation as a family, now, we've been allowed, given our rather cush circumstances here in America, to kind of lose sight of this, but especially were hard times and or persecution to arise, we'd feel this all the more acutely, that the congregation as family is a place also of financial and monetary support, psychological and relational support, as well, of course, as theological support, spiritual support. Thank you for your comment. Appreciate it. It's all the way. Sorry. (laughs) I'm wondering, it seems to me, as you read the passages today, that there was a, 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 a theme, it wasn't brought out explicitly, but where the righteous are growing, they're flourishing, mm-hmm. they're like mm-hmm. seeds being scattered and growing, um, whereas the wicked seem to be saying, I'm keeping my stuff. Yeah, I'm keeping all my stuff and I'm not going to share. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, oh, you know, I'm keeping my stuff. That seems like wisdom, I guess, if you want to have more stuff. But actually, it isn't. The best thing to do is to realize that we're not like, it's not a zero-sum game. We don't just have so much stuff to go around. It grows the more we share and scatter and so on. Mm -hmm. So it's like what seems wise really isn't. The wisdom is actually 
Yeah. Is, is not to keep your seed so you can make bread, but to throw it on the ground mm-hmm. so that it'll grow into more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think I resonate very much with those sentiments. I think that's exactly right. And I, I think you'll be pleased if you haven't looked ahead already to the next verses, 30 and, and 31, but 30 especially, that really echo that sentiment, drive it home. In fact, maybe that's a good time to just turn to those verses and take a look. So at verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Kind of an incredible statement. We know in the profoundest sense that the tree of death has become the tree of life. And it looks like a tree of death, that's the cross, in order to require faith. Looks its exact opposite. We have to entrust ourselves to that revelation of God. The tree of death, the cross, is the very tree of life. And what hangs from that tree of death does not look good for food, but indeed bring, and looks like it would bring death to be a, one who consumes the flesh and blood of another human being is to become worthy of death. But in fact... To eat that which hangs from the tree of death, the body and blood of Christ, is to eat from the tree of life and eat that which gives life. Take, eat, take, drink for you for the forgiveness of sins. And where there's forgiveness of sins, there's life and salvation. So in the same way that Christ is that tree of life and we are Christians, so also here the Proverbs set before us that we become trees of life so that the fruit we bear gives life to others. It's all intimately connected with him. It's never separated from him. But this is, and it's a profound, unspeakably profound honor that he bestows upon us. But that's, I think, what's in view. As we meditate on this, the righteous, we can't help but see Christ first and foremost. But then that's also true insofar as we are Christians, as we are one with him, baptized into him. And so we become a tree of life unto others. And the whole purpose of being a tree, I mean, from this viewpoint, is to give your fruit. Not to selfishly retain it. What good's that going to do? But to distribute it to those around you so that they enjoy the life that you bestow and you yourself have received that from Christ. Okay, a positive parallel. And whoever captures or wins souls is wise. We hear Jesus himself speak in the gospel text today of his desire to search out others and bring them into his flock so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. So this is the idea to, to win or capture those around us. And you can see how that's contrary to troubling your own household. Now, it may turn out, of course, that as you try to capture them with the truth, you end up troubling them, (laughs) and they don't like it. But that's not what's in view here in these Proverbs. That's in keeping with Jesus saying, do you think that I came to bring peace? No, I tell you not peace, but a... Sword, and that his kingdom and his truth will in fact divide earthly families. Okay. So 
beautiful imagery here that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? And I don't want to retread all the ground we've covered on the complexities of that, on the ways in which it's temporally true and sometimes temporally not true, and the way that ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth it's absolutely true. I would simply echo the main sentiment, which, as you can tell, there's a lot of overlap and repetition. The Holy Spirit must know that we need it in these Proverbs. The chief point being here, not to forsake your faith in God's justice. He's both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ, St. Paul writes. And since we have been justified by grace through faith apart from works, we then are also or we rather should also have in mind the fact that God is watching and God cares. And while God doesn't keep a record of our iniquities, God does keep a record of our good deeds. And even though we don't ultimately see the outcome of that, we know it's true. And we know that that outcome will come. Again, this is in view of fighting the nihilism and the meaninglessness that threatens us all around, and that sometimes, if you have like a justification-only sort of framework, then unfortunately you're going to play in, right into that, because you're going to say, any good work that I do is just meaningless because Christ is my righteousness, and it doesn't matter if I do this thing or don't do this thing, Christ is my righteousness. Yeah, that you're just robbing yourself of the reality that it does have meaning, it does have purpose, it causes God delight, and even Jesus says you're even something so insignificant that you didn't even notice it happened, like giving a cup of cold water to a little child in my name, will by no means lose his reward. It's kind of the beauty of God opening up the books, in the imagery of Revelation at the end, opening up the books, the shocking wonderful of the go- wonderfulness of the gospel is that in that column where your sins would be, there's just been the blood of Christ spilt, and it's illegible. And that column of where your good works are, it'll be complete and detailed and nothing left out. Okay, so that probably suffices and more than suffices for 31. As we jump into chapter 12 of Proverbs Verses 1 through 28, which is the whole of this little set, Um, the whole of chapter 12 is this set, this righteous behavior part two is what Steinman calls it in his commentary, and that's fine. So at the transitional point, again, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. And so again, the idea that lots of people suffers, virtually everyone suffers, but not everyone recognizes that suffering as discipline and as reproof given by a heavenly Father who through these things imparts knowledge. 
Verse 2, a good man obtains favor from the Lord, which again can sound, if you rip that out of context, really works righteousness But that word favor is the same word for delight in verse 20 and for favor in verse 27 of the previous chapter. And so in context, then, we see that this is playing once more on this theme that a good man obtains favor or delight from the Lord. But a man of evil devices he condemns. So just one more quick note on a recurring theme, and that is, as you conduct yourself in your vocations, you do so not because of the worthiness of those whom you are serving, but because of the worthiness of your Father who sees, whether in open or in secret, and will reward in open or in secret. Okay, so the idea of conducting oneself in one's vocation, you say, okay, well, I've got this duty as a husband, but I don't feel like it because my wife isn't worthy of it. Or this duty as a wife, and I don't feel like it because my husband isn't worthy of it. Okay, that's not the point. The point is that your duty and calling come from God, not from your spouse. He's got your job description, and he's waiting and watching in order to be delighted by your good execution of your duties. And indeed, that's really the essence of love. Love that is much deeper than mere fluffy feelings or nice feelings. Uh, The mom, when she wakes up to the screaming, crying infant at 2 a.m., does not feel like waking up, is not overjoyed to be headed there, to be woken up out of dead sleep. She's probably not singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in that precise moment. But then, despite not feeling much like it, she does it because that's the deeper expression of love. And that has its parallels in all of our vocations. So love is especially poignant when you don't feel like it and it's done. And especially delightful to the Lord. That's kind of St. Peter's sentiment of this is a gracious thing in the sight of the Lord when you suffer for, what is doing, for doing what is right. That's what, it, that's what that word graciousness means. God delights in it. Okay, so... A good man obtains favor from the Lord or delight from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. No one is established by wickedness. It's kind of an interesting one to ponder, and I invite your ponderings, of course. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. I kind of take it to mean that no matter how much wickedness you do, no matter how much wicked foundation you lay down, or what a great building of wickedness you create, it's all washed away in a blink of an eye in God's judgment. So no one is established by wickedness, no matter how great the volume or the endeavor. In contrast... The root, the mere root of the righteous will never be moved. So grounded deeply in the soil, even if it's just a mere root. 
will never be moved. Okay, so obviously I think that that goes along with three, the preceding proverb. In four, we, verse four, we expand out to the husband and the wife. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Remnition of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, where the woman is the glory of man. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. And that imagery, reminiscent of the presentation of the Isha to the Ish of Eve to Adam, when God gives her and he says, this is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And so as she is excellent in her vocation to him, she is his crown and his glory and, his, and he, you know, loves and delights in that. But should she bring shame, then like rottenness in his bones, for she is truly flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. So, wives, here is wisdom, that you can be the crown of your husband, or you can be rottenness in his bones. a lot of power. And I think that has its application on a daily basis as well as on a macro basis. So, again, it's not like you, go, you recognize like, okay, well, I've, I've kind of wrecked that one. Well, today's a fresh day. Tomorrow is too. When you get up, make the sign of the cross, remember your baptism, you've been washed of your sins, you're a new Creation, you're practicing the resurrection and rise and be a crown unto your husband that day. And why? Because he deserves it? No, that's not the point. But because that's what God has called you to be. That's what he's created you to be. And making the two one flesh, it is in fact he himself who makes the two into one flesh. Okay, verse 5, the thoughts of the righteous, the sadakim, are just mishpat. So those are just parallel words. The thoughts of the righteous are just. So this is kind of in keeping with a good tree bears good fruit, that we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We've been united with God as we grow in righteousness. Our thoughts grow in their justness. By contrast, the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. So just versus deceitful, righteous versus wicked, believers versus unbelievers, regenerate versus unregenerate, all of those things in view. Verse 6 is very closely connected. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood. So the words of the wicked lie in wait for blood. You can remember this, how many times this occurs in Jesus' own ministry, where people will come up to him with all manner of questions or statements that seem innocent. Or, lo and behold, they'll just happen to have a really 
obviously sick man set before Jesus on a Sabbath, which is like complete bait. (laughs) If you're Jesus and you can heal and you want to heal, and they're just waiting to entrap. So I think that that kind of behavior that this proverb is speaking of, the Pharisees, ironically, who try to pursue the law, because they pursue it apart from Christ, end up in constant violation of it. And their words, the words of the wicked, lie in wait like a trap for blood. They're constantly trying to entrap Jesus and, and his disciples. Okay, The mouth of the upright delivers them. So it's interesting. It, there's just a little bit of an asymmetry. The words of the wicked um, are trying to entrap others. The mouth of the upright delivers them. Now, that can be others, but it's probably the upright themselves that are delivered by their mouths because their mouths speak truth. And there's no fear in truth. So that'll be a theme that's kind of bolstered as we go through 12 here. Use your mouths carefully. Verse 7, the wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. I mean, it seems self-evident enough and ties in with the language of house, with the language of household back in 1129, seeing that there's more to it than mere individualism. There's other people connected All right, let's do eight and then let's pause. I think these are fairly straightforward. I hope they are, but let me know if if you want to talk more. A man is commended according to his good sense, his kalo, his uh, prudence. Excuse me, prudence. So he's commended according to his prudence, his um, good sense, his right judgment, right distinctions. But one of twisted mind is despised. So there's this, there's this idea, again, that sin bears its own punishment baked in. And that's the idea, too, that one of a twisted mind who aspires to twisted mind and has a twisted mind, it's only a certain amount of time until the people around him realize that. And that's true, too, of, I mean, whether it's an unbeliever or a believer, you know, one who has a twisted and devious and deceitful mind and pursues that path, eventually that reveals itself. And he's despised. So here's an admonition to be simple and straightforward. Or as Jesus would say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. No. So the straightforward simplicity of the truth um, and being a person that has integrity and where where you've spoken and you thought it was the truth, you recognize it's not, to repent of that, to take it back, and to amend yourself. I mean, that is all the way of wisdom, and it has its effect because other people see that and see a person of integrity. And you delight in integrity, but nobody likes a twisted mind. All right, let me pause there. Let me see what you, what you guys have in mind. And then uh, these next three verses kind of go together, uh, Steinman says in his commentary. Straightforward enough? Pace is too slow, too fast? 
Okay, I'm getting no feedback, so I'm just going to keep going along. <laughs> there we go. So it seems like the obvious question is then how do we minister to the the twisted mind? Do we just leave them to in their own twistiness or do we try to straighten them out? <laughs> yeah, well, you may find it's futile in some cases. There may have to be some of that discipline that comes upon them before they have ears to hear. But I think I think in many respects, this is like Christ saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if you were bound up, you'd want somebody to loose you. Or at least point out the fact that, hey, do you realize your ankles are fettered and you'd walk a lot better if you didn't have that? So I think, depending upon your vocation and your relationship, and that's going to contour, this is where it's art, not science, going to contour the way in which you're able to speak to this person. You know, if it's your child, you might be real blunt. <laughs> if you're a father, you might be real blunt. Um, but if the relationship is more delicate, you might be more delicate. And yeah, But I think, it's, I think it's good to, in the same way that our Lord gives to us law and gospel, to do law and gospel unto others. And when you catch someone in a twisted mind, say, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but this is what you're up to. I see it. Other people are going to see it. It's not going to go well for you. God creates us to have a straightforward mind, not a twisted mind. Please. You made a comment just a bit ago about if you're Christian and you have a twisted mind. And Mm -hmm. I thought, well, in this world today, a Christian with a twisted mind might be revered. Yeah, exactly. For erroneous reasons. And it's, it's very hard because if you say, well, you're not a Christian if you act that way. Mm-hmm. You, that's condemning as well. Mm-hmm. So you can't do that. Yeah, I should, I should make a distinction. So in terms of pure exegesis, I think what's in view here, I think a Christian's precluded from having this kind of twisted mind. I think it's that binary. I think it's one or the other. And it's sort of like choose your path, life or death. Um, walk as a Christian or walk as an unbeliever. But, okay, so with that obviously aside, we know Christians who have twisted minds. We see it all around us. Christians who are trying to, I mean, and here, here's a question. It's like, I'm, the Lord knows if they're Christians. The Lord knows if it's a felicitous inconsistency or if it's a complete hypocrisy down to the root. I don't know, but the Lord knows. But where you have Christians of twisted minds trying to say things completely different and contrary to what the scriptures say, especially when it's in keeping with the wickedness of the age, you've got a major issue. And it's, I think it's really helpful to try your first approach to be one of straightforwardness, humility, assuming the good, not the bad, but you, and you'll find out pretty quick, though, who, what you're dealing with, right? Yeah, we're supposed to walk humbly before God, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of Christians who really act like Pharisees. Mm-hmm. And, you know, deliver me from that evil. Yeah, yeah. Oh, here, Dave. You done? Dave retracts his question. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Anything else we want to chat about? We want to do the next three. All right, the next three are a bit of a piece together. So 
Verse 9, better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Okay, so that is to say, better to recognize your status and station and don't get a bunch of credit cards and start maxing them out. Now, better, better to recognize what the Lord has given to you and be frugal and wise. A servant is a profoundly frugal and wise thing to have in your household in this day and age because a servant is going to multiply the productivity of the household. So by humbling yourself and using what money you have to have a servant, you're going to um, uh, multiply yourself. Whereas look at the opposite. If you elevate yourself and you play a great man, then the reality is you don't even have food. Or in our day and age, all your food is bought on credit. So I think that's, that's clearly in view here. So maybe, maybe, the, maybe a very basic translation would be live within your means. And you'll, be, and you'll find yourself much more blessed over time and um, maybe even having more over time than living way outside of your means where you're not going to have anything. I don't know, do we have any people in Orange County who play the great man? (laughs) I know of not one. No. Yeah, you've got people all over. I think many people think, if I play the great man, then eventually the wealth will come and I'll be the great man. I think that's a lot of the sort of dry in, but it doesn't work that way. Okay, so better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Whoever is righteous, verse 10 has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. An astounding, astounding proverb. So a righteous man, and again, Christian in view, a wise man, a righteous man, has regard for the life of his beast. He cares not only for his family, not only for his servant, but also for his animals, And there's wisdom in that. Because if you care for your beast, your beast is going to live longer and be more productive. And so there's this idea that graciousness ends up being more fruitful and profitable over time than does strictness. And that's the next line, which of course is a contrasting parallel line. The mercy of the wicked is cruel. So if the mercy is cruel, then what's the cruelty? Unspeakably cruel. If even the light is darkness, then how great is the darkness? Remember Jesus saying that very much in keeping here. So if even the mercy is cruel, then how great is the cruelty? And again, the wicked is going to do this because he thinks by being cruel, by using people and things as a mere means to an end, he's going to be more profitable. And he may, in the short term, 
Many of the wealthiest CEOs are cutthroat and have stepped on all kinds of people to get there and trampled all kinds of people to get there. And there is a momentary benefit to that. But especially as we look beyond this life, you'd wish you never had done that. You'll come to thoroughly regret it. Okay, so, yeah, here's kind of an astonishing thing. And I think, I I mean, just a delightful invitation to think of, um, you know, whether you're a father and you're kind of looking at what God has said under you vocationally or um, you're a, a, a mother and or, you know, even if you're a single individual, you're looking at what God has given you to do and what God has set underneath you. Um, there's, there's this idea of um, having respect and regard for the things that God has given you and handling them all graciously um, as is fitting. Okay, so verse, uh, let's see, 11. And this is the last of the three that kind of tie closely together. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Any kiddos in here thinking about going to college? (laughs) Be careful. (laughs) Be careful. Because there's a path that will lead you to benefit and blessing and serve you in your ability to serve others and there's another path that is a worthless pursuit that will lead you to nothing but a bunch of educational debt and regret that you wasted those years okay so whoever works his land will have plenty of bread obviously this is a proverb and we haven't seen too many of these yet but we're going to and that's this idea of uh, it's the call of hard work Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. Doing that which God has given you to do. Doing that which has been set before you. And just as a complete tangent, I'm not going to do it justice, but just as a complete tangent, that's um, a great and wonderful thing that you can do as parents generally, but as fathers specifically, is to look at your kiddos and see where their skills, abilities, and talents are and help direct them in ways that are going to lead to a fruitful and positive outcome. You know, we can't just say to our kids, very irresponsible to say to our kids, well, you can be whatever you want. Okay, great. I, want, I a six-foot-tall white guy, want to be in the NFL. Yeah, weighing 185 pounds, soaking wet. That's not going to happen. I can't be whatever I want. I want to be an astronaut. Yeah, well, that's not in the cards either, Rody. Look at your report card and math. Okay, so what then are you good at? What do you enjoy? And how can we cultivate that into a way that's going to be fruitful for you and fruitful for others? It's part of your stewardship. And then that's the idea of whoever works his land, that which has already been given you, work it, and you'll have plenty of bread. You'll also have a great deal of joy because it's what God's gated and gifted you to do. But the contrast, he who follows worthless pursuits, I think I'll do that. I think I'll do the other. I think I'll get a degree in women's studies. Whoever follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. It's not going to lead you where you want to go. might poison you along the way. have a bunch of debt or whatever, all because you looked at what you did have and said, no thanks, and went off after something worthless. So great amount of wisdom here. Obviously, there's other application, much broader application. I'm just kind of pecking on one narrow 
application of this kind of wisdom. I think it goes true for us, though, vocationally, too, that if you just look at what you have, there's plenty to do, there's plenty to cultivate, there's plenty to uh, blossom forth and, and tend, as it were, your garden that God has given, as opposed to thinking, I constantly need to do something new. Because there's that kind of disease, too, where you open up your closet and out tumbles an avalanche of all the hobbies you began but never got into. (laughs) Constant pursuit of uh, this thing that's going to make me happy that ends up being worthless and doesn't. So I think there's maybe a broader application. Okay, those three kind of go together as a suite. Just this, and you can see the themes. Lowly, what God has given you, Cultivate that within your means. You're going to be more blessed than pretending to be great and rich when you're not. Because you recognize what you have as God's gift and God's stewardship, you're going to want to have regard for it, even if that's your beast. All the way down, have regard for the possessions God has given you. Cherish them as gifts. Cultivate them. And then work what has been given to you with contentedness, and you're going to have plenty of bread, you're going to have all you need to eat. And don't be led astray by worthless pursuits that are going to lead nowhere, and then actually strip away from you your joy, your productivity, your groundedness, and the gifts that God has given. So these are all vocational concepts and themes also, that God has called you and given you specific things. Okay, yeah, I see a hand in the back. probably evident to everybody in here i'm forgetting where did we go off the rails with the purpose-driven life concept (laughs) how did that get it so wrong yeah the purpose-driven life is like the right question for the times the wrong answer he says it's it's all about god and then the rest of the book is it's all about you and then there's not a lot of vocational and not a lot of... Rea- it's, it's kind of a lot of this... I don't know. I'm probably being unfair. But it seems to me to be kind of a lot of this create-your-own-reality type stuff, a little bit. Um, whereas a more biblically grounded, more classic answer would be not finding meaning in yourself, but finding meaning in Christ. He's the Logos that entered the world. Everything's vanity and meaninglessness apart from the meaning become flesh. And then what we're talking about by vocation in this deeper sense is patterning our lives after Christ's life, which includes crucifixion and resurrection. Christ does no more, no less than what the Father gives him to do. And Christ receives, though he's sinless, he receives discipline and affliction from his father's hand. St. Luke says that he grows not only in stature, but in wisdom through these various impositions. And so the meaning of our life is patterned after Christ crucified and Christ raised. Christ faithful, even though no good deed goes unpunished. And that becomes the patterning and meaning of our life so that we see in our sorrows the man of sorrows, and in our joys, the deeper joy Christ had even when he was sacrificing himself on the cross, 
and we invest ourselves fully and confidently in that reality, entrusting ourselves to him just as he entrusted himself to his father, that precisely as we are humbled or humiliated in the technical sense of that word, humbled, we will be exalted with him and glorified, be glorified with him. So that's more, I think Rick Warren might have missed those themes. Right, right question, wrong answer. All right, that's all the time we have. The Lord be with you.